Our scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. This is God's Word. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you by your grace hear us when we groan. You, by your grace, remember your covenant with us and never forget us. You, by your grace, see us and move towards us. And you, by your grace, know us. Would you please now, by your grace, give us the ears to hear you, give us the eyes to see you, and give us hearts to know you and to love you, O Lord our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our study of the book of Exodus this morning. Last week, we saw the birth of Moses. We looked at this very unlikely and surprising birth narrative about a little boy born into slavery in Egypt in the midst of state-sponsored infanticide. That's what was going on. You remember um, every newborn Hebrew male was supposed to be slaughtered on the spot. Uh, Just a few verses ago, we watched as his mother built a little boat, a little ark, and placed this little boy in it, put it in, and put it in the river. 
expecting never to see him again as that little boat floated off. You, you have to imagine that as she's making that little ark, that little boat, she thought that she was making her little boy's coffin. You remember um, the mother doesn't even stay to watch what happens. It's as if she can't even bear to watch. And so the sister stays to see what will happen. Because in her minds, in this little boy's family's minds, it's over. The little boy's story is done. When they put that little boy in that little basket, they did not think that they were going to pick him back up from it again. They've come to a dead end. It's over. That was goodbye. What they didn't realize, though, it was that in that moment, they were actually characters in a much larger story, a story that was far from over yet because it was actually just beginning. What they didn't have the eyes to see yet was that they were characters in, the, in a story that was being written by the living God, and this divine author of the story loves to incorporate dead ends into the plot line of his narrative that he's writing. Dead ends just seem to be his favorite raw materials to work with. Dead end situations, dead end circumstances, dead end types of people, they're just all over the story that God is writing in the Bible. Um, Look, you cannot open your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and put your finger down somewhere in the Old Testament and not put your finger on either a dead-end situation right there or to be within five chapters of a dead-end situation or a dead-end person or a dead-end scenario. Some kind of hopeless and dark and bleak kind of situation where people would have looked at it and said, Yeah, they're not coming back from that. Yeah, there's nothing that can be redeemed there. The story ends here. There's nothing redeeming that can happen here. God is not at work here. Dead ends are not the exception in the Bible. They're the rule. I mean, they are all over the place. The people in situations that seem hopeless, that don't appear to hold any kind of potential, that looks so bleak and dark and empty. Look, the more you read your Bible, the more you realize that starting at Genesis 3, it really is like this is the storyline. It goes from one dead end where God shows up and then it leads to another dead end where God appears and is at work that leads to another dead end, where God is at work and he redeems it, which leads to another dead end, and on and on and on. That is the storyline. That's the plot line of the Bible. It's the storyline of God at work in a fallen world. And it's the story of your life. It's the story of my life. God is always at work in the dead ends, the dead end situations, and with dead end kinds of people like you and me. To bring about, in Paul's words, more than we could ever ask or imagine. The places in your life, the places in your story that we look at and we say, God can't do anything with that, are usually the places where God is just rolling up his sleeves and saying, I'm just getting started. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news because it means that right now he's at work in those dead ends. He's at work in those dark, dead end kinds of places, those hopeless situations, those failures and mistakes of yours those failures and mistakes of other people that have deeply impacted you that you can't imagine God to redeem. 
You can't see him being at work in those things. You can't see a way forward because it looks like a dead end. Our passage this morning is one of those places in the story that God is writing where we go from one dead end that God shows up in only to lead to another dead end just a few short verses later. The dead end of Moses in a little basket about to float off down the river is wonderfully redeemed, we saw last week, but it's just going to lead to one more dead end just a few verses later. But here's the thing. The story of Exodus is not even about Moses. He's not the main character. And the story of Exodus isn't about God's people. Israel is not the main character. The story of Exodus is about God. And so what does God want us to see here about himself? What is God showing us about himself, the God who's always at work in dead ends? Well, I want you to see four things. First of all, we see here that that God is at work when he delays. God is at work when he delays. There are two very short Hebrew um, phrases here in this passage that cover excruciatingly long periods of time. Verses 11 and verse 23, very short phrases in Hebrew, some of them just a few words, that cover very long stretches of time when it looked like God was not at work and was not present, not on the scene. Just look at how our passage starts. It's hard to even get past these few words without pausing to think about how painful this was. One day when Moses had grown up, all right, now stop there, just four Hebrew words that cover what Acts 7 in the New Testament tells us was actually 40 years. Four Hebrew words, 40 years. 40 years that we know nothing about. Well, we know one thing about it. It, 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 it hurt. There were 40 years of dark, painful, excruciating slavery for God's people. 40 years of waking up, going to work, coming back exhausted, going to bed, and doing it all over again. Forty long years of Hebrew mothers losing some of their male children. The Hebrew midwives were saving some of them, yes, but they were not led to believe that they were saving every single one of them. Forty long years have passed since verse 10 when when Pharaoh's daughter scooped up Moses from the river. Forty excruciatingly long, dark, empty years when life went on and nothing happened changed. You notice the first thing we hear about is is that an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew slave. Nothing's changed. Forty years. In other words, 40 long years that God's people would have looked around at their circumstances, looked at their lives, and they would not have been able to see direct evidence that God was at work. Actually, all of the evidence seemed to point in in the other direction that God had abandoned them, that God wasn't there, that they were alone, that he wasn't interested. And notice verse 11 isn't the only short phrase that holds a lot of years. Look at verse 23. The New Testament, again, tells us that this phrase covers another long, excruciating 40 years. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. Two short Hebrew phrases, 80 long years of Hebrew suffering. What do you do with a God that delays? What do you do with a God that doesn't seem to be in a hurry? What do you do with a God that just lets time pass? 
that doesn't sync up his calendar to yours? What do you do with a God that, that delays and seems to just let things get worse? Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to experience the delay of God in your own life. To be, to be waiting for a good thing that you're asking for. Or to be waiting for God to take away a hard thing that you're asking for him to take away and he hasn't. Maybe you know what it's like to wait in the midst of a season of life when you, you look around at your life and your circumstances and you struggle to see direct evidence that God is with you and for you and there. Maybe you know what it's like to wait in the darkness with no answers. With no answers for why God isn't intervening. Why isn't God showing up? Why isn't God doing something? Maybe you know what it's like to wonder if God's delay means that he's disinterested, that he's distant. What do you do with a God that delays? Well, the Bible, the Bible does give us an answer to that question, and it does give us an answer here. But before we get to that, I want you to see something so practical and so helpful. Before giving us an answer, I want you to see that the Bible actually encourages us to ask that question. That question, how long, O Lord, is a question that you see littered throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. God's people are always asking that question, and God never seems to discourage it. God's people, in the midst of God's delay, are always encouraged to ask God why he's delaying. We saw it earlier in, our, in Psalm 6, how long, O Lord? That is not the cry of unbelief. It can be, but from the cry of a heart that's recognizing that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be and that only God can fix it, that's the cry of belief. That's the cry of faith. And the Bible actually encourages us to ask that question. Look, if you're not asking that question in some way right now, then it means that you're not waiting on God for something, which means that you're waiting on something else. You've really put your hope in something else. Or it means that you're way too comfortable here. The Bible encourages us to ask that question, God, why do you delay? But what answer does it give us to that question here? I want you to see that Exodus, holds, Exodus 2, our passage, actually holds out an answer for us. But it's not, a, it's not a silver bullet. It's not an airtight, kind of logical, rational explanation that just solves everything. No, what Exodus 2 holds out for us is God himself. The very character of God himself, his promises and his ways. And it, it holds out for us the guarantee that God is at work behind the scenes and underneath the surface of his delays. It holds out for us the promise that God's delay is never an indication that he's disinterested, that he's never distant. As we're about to see, Moses actually isn't ready to save Israel yet. And Israel actually isn't ready to be saved yet. Just the fact that their life hurt didn't mean that the time was right. And God knew it. But the passage also gives us something else. It reminds us that, God's, that during God's delay, the wheels of redemption were rolling along at full speed, at 100 miles an hour, behind the scenes. They just didn't see it. 
They just didn't have the ears to hear the wheels of redemption rolling along at full speed. Because what is God doing the whole time during the delay? He's raising up and preparing a deliverer, a rescuer, before his people are even asking for it. (laughs) That's the kind of God that you have. A God that's at work in the midst of his delays. And that's the perspective that Exodus 2 is inviting us into. It invites us to trust again and again for the first time or for the 10,000th time this morning that his delays in your life are never evidence of his disinterest or of his distance. But his delays always cover up what he's doing. His delays are always a, a shield of some kind that, 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 let us, that don't let us see how the wheels of redemption are, are rolling along at 100 miles an hour where God has already purposed to save you from something that you may not even be asking to be saved from yet. <laughs> the character of God and his promises and his ways. In his delays, sometimes that's all you have to hold on to. And that's enough. So that's the first thing that we see here is that, is that God is at work when he delays. But secondly, I want you to see that God is faithful when we fail. God is faithful when we fail. It, I'm familiar with this passage, but it's never quite hit me like it did this week as I was spending time with it, just how utterly sad and tragic this chapter is in Moses' story. Think about it. The story that's still fresh in our minds as Bible readers right now at this point is still the the story of Joseph, right, that that covered the last part of the book of Genesis. And who was Joseph? You remember? Remember Joseph? He was an Israelite who grew up as an insider in Egypt. God uses Joseph to save his family, to save Israel, by Joseph getting inside the system of Egypt and, and working salvation from the inside, he was a great statesman. He was a great leader. He had all the connections. He, he, was, he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. He worked salvation from the inside as a part of the system. And so, look, that's the story that Exodus is, is setting us up to, to believe is happening all over again. When we hear that Moses has been rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter and, she, and he's being brought up in Pharaoh's own house, he's getting all the right connections he knows all the right people. He's an insider. Look, we're, we're, we're thinking at this point, okay, well, this is going to be easy. I know exactly what God's doing here. God just called this play a few chapters earlier. We know exactly what he's going to do. This is easy. Moses is going to grow up. He's going to be a deliverer from the inside of the system. He's going to be this great diplomat and statesman. He's going to just ask Pharaoh to let the people go, and they're going to do it. Because we we've already seen that happen with the story of Joseph. Think about it. He's got all the right training, all the right background, all the right connections. He's the perfect candidate. And he's in his prime. He's 40 years old. That is the prime, right? Um, yes. Look, he's ready. This is his moment. This is what we've been waiting for. The fullness of time has come. And that's why this episode is so crushingly disappointing. Because Moses absolutely blows it. In one good-hearted but rash moment, Moses throws it all away. All the connections. 
all the hopes and dreams that Israel had connected to him up to this point, he blows it and throws it all away. Watch how it happens. We're told that Moses went out to his people and he looks on them and their burdens. And notice already by this point, he, he identifies himself as one of them. He's been raised in Egypt, but he's an Israelite at heart. Hebrews 11 hints at the fact that even before this episode, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's from Hebrews. So he's already chosen sides. He knows who he is. That's why when he comes to the scene in, in verse 11, he doesn't see one of his people beating a Hebrew slave. No, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people. That's my brother. He's a part of my story. I'm with him. Those are his people. And what happens next demonstrates that Moses, he's going to be a good rescuer, but at this point, he's not a good negotiator. <laughs> not very good at conflict resolution yet. Because the next thing we know, there's a dead Egyptian, and his blood is on Moses' hands. If you've seen that animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, it portrays this scene like it was an accident, like Moses was just trying to get in the way and rescue the Hebrew, and the, and the Egyptian accidentally falls off of the scaffolding, and he didn't mean to do it. But that's not the way that the Bible records this scene. No, notice that first of all, he has to look this way and then that way. Why? Because he knows he's about to do something he doesn't have the authority to do as an Egyptian official. And then he hides the evidence. He buries the body in the sand. You don't do that if you know that you're in the right. <laughs> he knows that what he did was wrong. Let's cut right to it. His motivations were great, but his methods were wrong. His heart was in the right place. But he was acting on his own accord, taking justice into his own hands, playing the role of judge, executioner, and jury. Because remember, by this point in the story, God has not appeared to him yet. He's not yet on God's mission, carrying out God's motives with God's methods by God's might. At this point in the story, even though his motivations are great, he's carrying out his own mission by his own methods, using his own might, and he blows it. And it's going to cost a lot. It costs 40 years. And a few verses later, he's on the run, a fugitive from justice with a criminal record. He's forfeited all his connections in Egypt. He doesn't have any credibility in Israel. He's in exile in the wilderness with no prospects of ever coming back. Another dead end. Moses' story at this point reminds me of an ESPN documentary that you may have seen. It's about one of the greatest football players that's ever lived. The greatest football player, I think, to ever play high school football in history. Grew up in Philadelphia, Mississippi. But you've probably never heard of him. His name was Marcus Dupree, and he played in high school. He played for a few years at the University of Oklahoma, I believe. This man was a man among boys. The, high, the, the, the camera footage of Marcus Dupree playing football in high school is incredible. You've never seen anything like it. Nobody like him has ever played high school football before. But there's a good chance that you don't even know who I'm talking about. And you know why? Because even though he was the greatest to ever play, the end of his story just it fizzles out in a sad, tragic way. What we thought was going to be amazing 
turned out to be a dead end. And you have to see the, the documentary to, to, to see the story of his life and what actually happens. But, but the title of that documentary just captures the sad, tragic quality of his life and of Moses' life. And you know what they call the documentary? The best that never was. The best that never was. And that should have been the story of Moses' life. I bet that after a few decades in the wilderness of Midian, that's how Moses would have titled the story of his career. The story of his career as a redeemer. The best that never was. And you see, I think we have to see Moses' failure here in all of its sadness, in all of its disappointing ugliness, so that we can see God's faithfulness right there in the midst of it as well, in all of its beauty. Because the good news is that right here, in the midst of all the disappointing ugliness and failure, the good news is that even the big-time failures and mistakes of God's people can't throw off God's rugged determination to be good to them and to bless them. The good news of Exodus 2 is that God is faithful when we fail and that our failures in the way that other people fail us never hijacks God's plan to bring glory to himself by being good to you. Think about this. At some point in Moses' life, at some point later, he was able to look back at one of the greatest failures in his life and to see even there God's fingerprints, to see that God was at work. Because this whole episode, the whole thing is, is one big foreshadowing. It's one big preview of what's about to happen. It's one big preview of the way that the, the whole story of Exodus is going to play out. It's all here in seed form. Watch. Moses is going to rescue his people from slavery in a big way. That's there in seed form here. And a lot of Egyptians are going to die when he does it. That's here in seed form. And he's going to bury a lot of Egyptians, not in the sand, but in the water of the Red Sea. That's here in seed form. And God's people are going to reject him when he tries to rescue them. They're not going to want him they're going to they're gonna say, who sent you? Who made you the boss? That's here in seed form too. You see, it's all here. It's all, this is one big preview and foreshadowing of the story of God's success. Which means that it's not just the story of, God's, of, of Moses' failure. So can you imagine, brothers and sisters, can you imagine the moment when that clicked in Moses' mind somewhere out there in the wilderness, when it hit him? that he could look back at this moment and not just see his failure, but the whole time see that it was actually a preview of the way that God was going to succeed and see God's goodness at work in it and see his faithfulness even in the midst of the ugliness of his failure. You see, it's as if God knew. It's as if God knew the whole time and he wasn't actually thrown off by Moses' failure. It's as if God knew that before he could trust Moses to lead his people through the wilderness, that Moses had to be led out there himself. It's as if God knew that before Moses could be ready to save Israel, he had to be convinced that he could not save them himself. 
Before Moses could be a somebody in leadership at the front, he had to learn that he was a nobody in the wilderness. And y'all, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news right now for you and me that God's faithful providence to us can even incorporate our greatest failures? Even the way that other people have failed you and those dead-end places in your story, in your life, that God can incorporate even those things so that one day you'll be able to look back, whether at, in this life or in the next, and say, God was there, and he was redeeming it, and he was present, and he was at work, incorporating even that to bring glory to himself and to be good to me. God is at work when he delays. God is faithful when we fail. Thirdly, and briefly, I want you to see that God is home when we're in the wilderness. God is home when we're in the wilderness. Starting in verse 16, we're told that Moses rescues these Midianite women at the well. And they take him home, and apparently Moses makes a good impression because he marries one of them in just a few verses later. You know, in the Old Testament, good things happen to single men when they show up at wells. They seem to always find a wife, and it happens here with Moses. So Moses settles down. He starts a family. He starts to put down roots out there in the wilderness of Midian. And what happens next? The, the, the text wants to impress this on us, that in verse 22, he gives birth to a son, and we read that he called his name Gershom. What a name. Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. That name Gershom, it, it sounds like the Hebrew word for a stranger, an alien, somebody who's wandering, somebody who's not home yet. It's the Hebrew word for somebody that doesn't belong where they are. It's what it means to be a sojourner. Somebody who has this deep felt sense that they're not where they're supposed to be that they're not home yet. And Moses names his son that because he's saying, your name, son, is what's true about me. I'm giving you a name that's always going to remind you and remind me of what's true about me. And I just want to point this out. It's easy to think that Moses understands himself as a sojourner, as an, as an exile, as a wanderer, because he's stuck out there in the middle of nowhere, out in the desert, out in Midian, far from Egypt, far from, you know, what's familiar to him, where he grew up. Um, that, that's why he's a sojourner. But, but that's actually not true. Because Hebrews 11 tells us that, that even when he was there in Egypt, Moses refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. He was choosing sides even back then when he was growing up. He chose God's people rather than what Hebrews 11 calls the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, listen, Moses knew that he wasn't home in Egypt either. When he names his son Gershom, he's telling us that he's never belonged anywhere where he's lived, that he's always had this deep felt sense of never being at home, of always being a wanderer. One of the tragic ironies about Moses' life is that he would be a rescuer 
that God would bring to use it, that God would use to bring his people home to the promised land, but that Moses would actually never get there himself. He would see it from a distance, but because of another failure, because of another sad, tragic mistake, Moses actually never makes it. He sees home from a distance, but he ends his life as a wanderer, as a sojourner, somebody who never makes it home. But you know what I think Moses would say to us if he was here with us right now? I don't think Moses would say, you need to feel sorry for me. He wouldn't say that. Moses would say, don't feel sorry for me. Don't pity me because I never knew what it was like to be home. Now, you know what Moses would actually say to us? He would say, I want you to learn the lesson that I learned out in the wilderness. And he gives us this lesson in Psalm 90. It's a lesson about home that Moses learned at some point when he was out there in the wilderness, sometime later, sometime after he named his son Gershom. Sometime later, he would write Psalm 90. It's the only psalm that we have for Moses, and it starts off by saying this. God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses learned that in this fallen world, that on this side of heaven, that home actually isn't a location, that it's a person. And he discovers that God has actually been his home the whole time. That even though he's a wanderer that's never felt at home here, that God has been his dwelling place and the dwelling place of his people in all generations, he says. He says, That home is a person, not a location, and it's a person that travels with you as you wander. Even as you might experience that deep felt sense of not being where you're supposed to be, of being out of joint, out of sync. Maybe you have a home and a zip code and 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 a permanent address here in Williamson County, but something deep inside of you says, I'm not there yet. And Moses would say, that's right. Because God is your home, and he's taking you there. Have you learned that yet? Are you still learning it? Are you learning what Moses had to learn? That that yearning for home, that yearning to belong, that yearning to feel rooted is actually a yearning that's not meant to take you to a location in this world, but it's meant to take you to a person who is your dwelling place. That's the third thing we see here is that God is home when we're in the wilderness. And the last thing I want you to see, the fourth fourth thing is that God is present when we hurt. God is present when we hurt. These last few lines in our passage are so powerful. The way that our passage ends is with this. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Brothers and sisters, something amazing happens in these verses. Something that we're led to believe actually hasn't happened yet. In all of those long years that Israel has been in Egypt, what is it? What happens? Their cry changes. They go from crying out, this hurts, 
to crying out, God, this hurts. And there's a universe of difference between those two cries. They cried out for help. Somewhere in those long, dark, agonizing years, their pain turned into prayer. And they went from saying, this hurts, which was true, but it still kept them in the center of their world, to crying out, God, this hurts, help me. And at that moment, look at what the writer does. It's like he, he, takes, us, he takes us up into the heavenly courtroom, into the throne room of God. And I want you to imagine it this way. The throne room of heaven is a very loud place. You've got angels that you can't even number and, and seraphim and cherubim yelling out and praising at the, at the top of their voices that you can hear if you have the ears for it across the universe. The throne room is a loud place. But the second that God's people's pain turns into prayer, you can hear a pin drop in that throne room because the whole place goes quiet. Because God is on the edge of his throne. He's at the edge of his seat, laser-focused on hearing every syllable, every groan, every helpless whimper. They have his full attention. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. That's not the language of God's memory being jogged. It's not the language of God forgetting something and saying, oh, that, oh, yeah. No, that's not it. This is the language of God remembering something that he put into motion a long time ago. This is, the, this is the language of God setting into motion a plan that he had made long beforehand, before they even cried out for help, before their lives had even started to hurt, even before they were born. You see, their cries for help didn't give God the idea to save them. God had already planned to. Eighty years before they cried out, he brought... He brought to life and he started to prepare the very man that was going to save them when they cried out much later in the future. And what this passage is showing us is that when we turn our pain into prayer, when we come to the end of our rope, to the end of our resources, and we come to him with empty hands crying out in, in, in real desperation and bankruptcy and emptiness and need, when God hears those prayers, he doesn't just take notice and lob help at us from a distance. No, watch what he does. He hears. He remembers. He sees. And then finally, the last words here, he knows. God knows. That's the language of deep, personal, intimate knowledge. It's the language of God getting up off of his throne, coming all the way down, and not just looking at his people from a distance, but entering in so that he can know their pain in the way that they know it. He comes down so far into their experience, into our experience, so that he doesn't just know about it, but he knows it and redeems it. Brothers and sisters, you can trust a God like this. 
You can trust a God like this who knows and sees and hears and remembers. You can trust a God like this with those dead ends in your life. You can trust a God like this when he seems distant and when he seems to delay. You can trust a God like this when you fail and when others fail you. And you can trust a God like this as you sojourn, as someone who actually doesn't belong in this world. You can trust a God who remembered you before you were even born, who sees you and knows you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you make that true? Would you by your grace, for the first time or for the 10,000th time, let us have hearts that can know you back, that can speak to you back, even if it's just helpless cries, knowing that you hear, knowing that you remember, knowing that you cannot forget. Lord Jesus, would you please give us fresh hearts to love you and trust you in the midst of our dead ends, in the midst of the darkness that you might be delaying in. Because, O Lord, you can never be distant or disinterested to those that you have purchased with your own blood. We thank you and we give praise to you for being a God like that. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.